Virginia is still playing baseball in Omaha, college football looks ready to expand its playoffs, and the NCAA takes it on the chin from the Supreme Court. All that and much more this week on Teal and Barber. Welcome in to episode 52 of Teal and Barber, the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Richmond.com's Virginia Tech, UVA, and ACC sports podcast. I'm Mike Barber, ACC beat writer for the paper, and joining me here as always, my co-host, the 13-time sports writer of the year and the Virginia Sports Hall of Famer, David Teal. David, how are you, sir? Good morning, Mike. I'm well. Hope everyone up in Charlottesville is the same. We are we are all doing well, thank you. And of course, since the last time we've had a show, we celebrated Father's Day. Uh, happy belated Father's Day to you and to you. Thank and you, to sir. Dean. Yes, all all of us here in that camp. So I'm curious, uh, what did you do in the Teal household to to mark the momentous occasion? Well, we'll get to it in a while. I watched UVA baseball. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Watch DVA baseball and John Rahm's redemption tour at Torrey Pines. Was wasn't that a cool story? I mean, given given the way things unfolded for him the last time out, that was. Uh, you know, it's funny because people always talk with golf of, hey, if you don't have Tiger or, or I think to an extent Phil, but uh, there's so many great stories and great personalities in that game. There, there are, and I mean, I'm I don't know about you or, or our listeners. I'm getting tired of the whole. DeChambeau, Kepka, uh, t- Twitter f- feud, which I believe is is a little bit choreographed, if not a lot choreographed. But for John Rahm to lose the or have the memorial just pulled out from under him on national television, no less, and shame on the PGA Tour for pulling that stunt. Hmm. Um, to you know, you, you do that in private. You. you in the scores tent, you don't do that to somebody on national TV when they have a six shot lead. <sighs> but then next time out, you win your first major. <laughs> I mean, wow, what a great, great story. Yeah, it worked out okay for him. And I'm glad you said that about Kepka and DeChambeau because I, I keep telling people it, it reminds me as a kid, I used to watch the, the WWF wrestling and yeah. the heel, it, it just. I mean, I'm sure there's a, an audience and a segment that that plays to and maybe helps some ratings, but um, unless you're going to step up and, and pair them together, um, don't, don't go halfway with that. I, it, it did feel it did feel a little manufactured and maybe maybe scripted. No question. Now, we, we also uh, here in this house, we celebrated the uh, second birthday for my son. He turned two uh, last Friday and we're taking him on vacation. And, and David, I wanted to ask you, we're going to fly him on a plane with us to, to Massachusetts. And I'm, I'm a bit, I, I guess terrified isn't too strong a word. <laughs> <laughs> now, and, and my son is, has been phenomenal to this point. Um, before the pandemic, we took him to, to every restaurant we could get him to in Charlottesville. He was great. Since things have cleared up and we've, we've been able to get vaccinated, we've taken him outdoors to restaurants. He's been great, but there's something different about being trapped in an airplane and subjecting all these other innocent people to, to his, potential behavior have you did you fly tiny teal at any point oh yeah she's she's flown a bunch and will again a a week from today when we head west now tiny teal is is almost (laughs) 10 now but yeah as as a as a toddler we we had her on an airplane and she did great 
Now, some you know, you've been on airplane, you've been on flights <laughs> before where it can get pretty grim with with a child nearby. A lot depends if they have any ear issues. Yeah, it's you know, it's, it's especially for for landing, and then you know, just make sure the tablet is charged, dude. <laughs> David, we went one step further. My wife bought a new, a new Kindle for him just yeah. for the trip. So yeah. he's mesmerized by the newness of it. And we've we've got. Uh, he loves the Cars movies. That was the theme of his birthday party. The Disney, the Pixar, uh, Cars, Lightning McQueen. So we've got those downloaded on it. Uh, a bunch of games that she's adding. And um, yeah, you're right though. I, I remember as a kid struggling with my first flight because of the ear pressure. Um, mm-hmm. And so, uh, and he's too young to chew gum, which is always the trick, you know, yeah. for, for older kids. I'm hoping maybe that giving him one of these baby pouches with the yogurt that just the swallowing will help. Who knows? But uh, I'm glad to hear that at least you and your family survived flying with a toddler. And um, did. I, I'll, I'll hope for the same. And uh, yeah, so it, it's uh, it's going to be interesting. And, you know, I just flew to, to Hartford to, to get myself back acclimated to that process and, um you know, our, our daughter has been on a couple flights with us now for vacations, but uh, this will be the first for, for the, the baby son. So we'll see how he does. And uh, fingers crossed. Absolutely. We'll be thinking about you. Now, we've been thinking a lot about Virginia baseball and uh, they're, they're still there in Omaha. They came six outs away from really being in the driver's seat to get back to the College World Series final. They had that 6 nothing win over Tennessee. Uh you know, Abbott with the great start for them in that game uh, in the in the opener out there. And they led their second game for nothing. Griff McGarry, he had a no hitter going into the eighth inning. And then, David, it just it just all fell apart for the Cavaliers. What did we see there? Mike, we could do a whole podcast on the eighth inning last night. I mean, you, you mentioned Virginia going to the eighth inning against Mississippi State with, a, with not only a four nothing lead and not only with Griff McGarry throwing a no-hitter, he's throwing a no-hitter into the seventh inning for the second consecutive start. That's unreal. In in the NCAA tournament. I mean, the guy has been lights out. And oh, by the way, he's been lights out in in three starts in the tournament, and he's yet to get a decision. I mean, Griff McGarry is still winless on the season. He's 0-5. I mean, it just, it doesn't compute. There's no no justice, no justice in baseball. No. I mean, with this guy's stuff and this guy's talent, but yeah, I mean, UVA's lead should have been much bigger, Mm -hmm. left runners in scoring position on multiple occasions. I believe they ended the night with 10 runners left on base. So that four nothing lead, could perhaps should have been six, seven, nothing, which would have given them obviously a far bigger cushion. But McGarry gives up the the two run jack to to Kellum Clark, which broke up the no no and the shutout. And then for the first time this postseason, the bullpen failed them. Yeah, you know the bullpen story is interesting to me, David, because they go with Stephen Shock, who who obviously was such a big story earlier in in this postseason and had been lights out for them. Uh, but the storylines we had heard coming out of Omaha was that after the long outing in the Super Regional, that his arm hadn't bounced back. And uh, it's easy, of course, to second guess now, but shouldn't the coaching staff know? I mean, it, it didn't take long, right, with, with Stephen out there to say, okay, he doesn't have his stuff. Shouldn't the coaching staff or the bullpen catcher, shouldn't they have known that before he went out there? Well, 
it's interesting, Mike, you know, because first they went to Zach Messenger and he couldn't get anybody. Gave up an infield hit. Now, you know, may, maybe that was a generous scoring decision. You know, maybe that's a play that Nick Kent should have made. And, and uh, I, I don't know. I was, it, it was an interesting scoring decision there. And then he, he gives up a double. Uh, and then they, they bring Shock in and – Mike, he didn't pitch in the Super Regional. He had not pitched since the That's right. regional yeah. against Old Dominion. He had not pitched in two weeks on the day since that 75 pitch outing you referenced against Old Dominion. And not only had he hadn't pitched in two days, they bring him in to face a left-hander who, oh, by the way, is the SEC Player of the Year. Yeah, not just any left-hander. <laughs> right. Turn around. Or Tanner Allen, excuse me. Mm-hmm. And second pitch, it's in the bullpen. And UVA's behind. And you're like, holy smokes. That escalated quickly. <laughs> but you're right. Clearly, Shock was was not at his best and, and didn't have his, his usual stuff. And I, I was, frankly, surprised that they brought him in. I thought they'd go with, with a lefty. And I certainly didn't think they'd bring in a cat who hadn't thrown in two weeks to face Tanner Allen. Yeah. Now, of course, again, it's it's always easy to to second guess because we know where that Allen ball lands. <laughs> but at, at the time, I thought the yeah. same thing as as it was unfolding, and 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 then to see the stuff, it it just it just looked like physically he wasn't ready to throw. And um, you know, you mentioned that Kent play though, and and, and I think about not that it was a routine or easy play by any stretch, but when you think about championship plays, that's kind of the one where, you know, you get that play um, and maybe that's your, your championship play, so to speak. And mm-hmm. uh, Virginia has been making a lot of those this postseason. Oh and yeah. It, it just didn't happen. And, and let's not say it didn't happen in the Mississippi state game. It didn't happen in that eighth inning, which was right. just um, God is going to go down as one of the, one of the worst in program history in what's been an otherwise such a, a memorable postseason for them. Yeah, and who knows how it p- plays out now. You know, we're, we're recording this Wednesday morning, so tomorrow night Virginia faces an elimination game. Obviously, the Cavaliers are well-versed <laughs> in that scenario. They've already had six of them and, and gone 6-0, and and now they get Texas tomorrow night. And if they survive that one, they'll have two more eliminations games because they would then have to turn around and beat Mississippi State not once, but twice to reach the championship series, perhaps against the other surprise team in Omaha, North Carolina State. Right. Isn't that wild? And, and both ACC teams there and, and, and playing entertaining baseball. But David, I think that's what was so take your breath away about the Mississippi State loss was if they finish it, if mm-hmm. UVA finishes that game, what a great position they're in. Perfectly yes. set up. Uh, Nate Savino presumably would have been fully rested uh, to start against uh, the, the next game, which I guess wouldn't have been Texas. But um, you, you know, everything would have been aligned perfectly. Now Savino th- comes in relief. Don't know what the plan will be in terms of who starts against Texas. Um, you know, it, it's a little bit of a scramble. Now you referenced this team has done quite well with their backs to the wall. But David, in, in this format in the College World Series. The difference between two and zero and one and one—it's a lot more than that than one game, isn't it? It's it's immense, and ESPN has run several graphics. Twenty-five of the last thirty 
national champions have started the College World Series two and zero. That tells so, you. What yeah, it's it, it's a slog to to come out of that losers bracket. It it truly is. Now it, it's always interesting in college sports in general because basketball you have the Final Four and and I'm not obviously everybody wants to win a championship, but how do you look at reaching the College World Series? You know, I think of reaching the Final Four as you know, this has been a great season and, and not everyone's going to win the championship that year. And um, the Final Four feels like the destination and the College World Series to me feels like the destination um, mm-hmm. in a way that maybe other, you know, semifinals, certainly in pro sports, it, it never feels that way, right? Ask the Buffalo Bills. Like, <laughs> it, 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 I don't know, for some reason, um, th- there's something about the college and maybe it's the pageantry of, of the event itself. But um for this Virginia team to be in the College World Series, how would you evaluate this year, regardless of where it goes from now? Oh my gosh! Especially when you consider from whence they came, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> I mean, I mean, Damon Dillman, our, our our good friend from from Charlottesville on on the TV, on the television side, had had a great tweet, and I don't have the exact numbers or the exact date in front of me, but he referenced like this particular date in April where NC State's like one and eight in the ACC in Virginia, which eventually became four and 12. I don't know what the Cavaliers were on this particular date, but they're way below 500. And and to think that both of these squads are among the final eight standing and now among the final six standing, no, is is remarkable. And, And Virginia could go out and lose to Texas tomorrow night. And I don't think anyone in their right mind would think that this was anything less than just an exceptional, memorable season. Yeah, it certainly is. And, and you mentioned the turnaround. And, and, and I keep coming back to, you know, this was a team with, with high expectations going into the year. Right, so it's not it's not the true Cinderella story. This was a team we thought would be a top five team, but the way things started, the way things were going, um, I mean, there, there was a point where I think it's fair to say people had um, you know written this team off. It, it just didn't look like a very good baseball team. And um, again, I, I think it started with Andrew Abbott really getting on track as as a dominant Friday night starter. I, I think this has just been. Um, a very memorable season. And, and, you know, you think about Brian O'Connor and, you know, th- this team had been in the NCAA tournament every year that Brian O'Connor was coach. And then they hit that drought with yeah. 2017 on. And, you know, the way it weighed on, on Brian, the way it weighed on this program, it, it's almost like a weight was lifted once they made the field. Um, and then it was like, okay, relax and play. And, and, and they've been fun to watch. And, um, you know, we're impartial, but I think we both, wouldn't mind if, if the run goes on a little bit longer. No, it's, I mean, you, you root for a great story and Virginia's been a great story and, and not to suggest that the other teams out there wouldn't be, you know, and, and heck you, you wrote about Evan justice yeah. this week yeah. and the, the NC state closer from, from Richmond and what, what a fabulous story he, he's become, you know, I me. Mean, Against Arkansas, he's he's lights out in, in the super regional to, to get the Wolfpack to to Omaha and you know and look at what the Wolfpack has done recently. Kevin Cops of Arkansas is hands down the best pitcher in the country. He's got an ERA of less than one. He was twelve and zero on the season 
and the Wolfpack beat him in Game 3 of the Supers on the road against the top-seeded team in the tournament. Yeah. And as we referenced, they're 2-0 uh, yeah. in Omaha, which is the position that, that you know makes such a huge difference. And you know that's a club, David, that was 1-8 uh, to open ACC play. 1-8 mm-hmm. to open ACC play. And um, you know a lot of credit to, to their coach, too, Elliot Avent. Who, yeah. When I talked to, to Evan uh, Justice, and, and I also spoke with uh, Clint Chrysler, their pitching coach, and they said, you know, to be in a bad spot like that, Elliot Avent may be the best coach you can have. Because he's just so jovial and fun-loving and supportive, and you know, he's competitive as all get out. But he didn't have to change his tone or, or his demeanor um, to get that team to just say, "Hey, you know, there's more baseball to play." And um, boy, the, the rest of their season, um, I think 32 and eight after their slow start, it's just been phenomenal. And you mentioned Justice, who was uh, bluntly not very good as their Friday night starter. Mm-hmm. He got hit around and. You know, they had high hopes for him in that role, and uh, it just didn't work out. And then the move to the bullpen, and it, it wasn't like he was put out to pasture. He became the key guy at the back end of that bullpen, and, and he's really shown um, this postseason and, and already in, in two wins in Omaha. And and how about how he finished off the other night mm. against Vanderbilt? They 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 beat they beat Jack Leiter in a one nothing game. Vanderbilt's undefeated in the tournament. Jack Leiter had struck out, what, 15 dudes? Mm-hmm. But all it took was was one swing. NC State gets a home run. And they, they first team all season to, to shut out Vanderbilt. I believe, actually, it was the Commodore's first shutout loss since 2019. Yeah, it's- and just crazy. I mean, baseball – as you well know, heck, you're you're from up north and you've been around the major leagues and the Yankees and such. It's the most random, peculiar of our team sports. You just never know. I always think of that closer role. It's it's like few things in sports, right? It's like um, you know a, a goalie facing a, a maybe a, a penalty shot in, in hockey um, or a breakaway. It, it's just it's such a unique role. Maybe a place kicker lining up for a game winning field goal, but a closer, think how many pitches, right? You're at least facing three batters, maybe more, um, with a one-run lead, with everything on the line. And, and we saw what happened with, with Stephen Schock if you don't have your stuff. So um, what Evan Justice has been able to do and, and over longer outings uh, here in the postseason, it really is um, remarkable performance under pressure. Uh, so from the diamond, let's go to the gridiron. And they're not playing this time of year, but that doesn't mean college football isn't a huge topic. And, <laughs> oh, my gosh. And, and boy, are, are they in some ways taking over this time of year. Let's start with the, the move to potentially expand the college football playoff. That seems to be gaining all the steam here is towards this 12-team format proposal. Uh David, first, your your just impression of the fact that this is kind of where we've landed as, as maybe the next step. I think a lot of people, I know me, I, I thought eight was the logical next step. Are you surprised twelve seems to be what's gaining gaining steam right now? Now that I've had a chance to look at and consider the proposal, no, because when when you think about it, Mike, if with with a fourteen playoff and no automatic qualifiers, you essentially had four at-large teams being chosen to compete for the national championship. Had they gone strictly to eight, there were going to be automatic qualifiers, probably six, because the group of five would have demanded one. So you've got 
then six AQs, and only two at-larges. Well, that's not really expanding access, especially for the Power 5 guys. So that didn't really make sense. Now, with 12, you're going to have the six highest-rated conference champions. No conference is, is guaranteed, but the six highest-rated conference champions, they're in. And you have six at-larges. And in that way, it almost mirrors the NCAA basketball tournament, mm -hmm. where you have 32 AQs and 36 at-larges. So the ratio of automatics to at-larges is pretty darn similar to the basketball tournament. So I, I really like that 12-team notion. So you do, and this is where I, I disagree, and I'll tell you why, because that all makes perfect sense. I guess in my mind or viewpoint, I wasn't trying to make the football playoffs like the NCAA basketball tournament. I love the NCAA basketball tournament. It, it's maybe the best sporting event that, that there is certainly, you know, that, that we get involved in covering and um, we love the upsets, right? We love the, the drama and the unexpected and all that, but I don't know that the NCAA basketball tournament gives us the champion that was the best team all year. And that's okay. I, I think that's fine. I think it works great for basketball for whatever reason in, in football I prefer the idea that the team that was the best all year is crowned the champion. And I think when you go to 12, you start to really endanger that outcome. Not the end of the world. It's going to be wildly entertaining. Uh, TV ratings, all that's going to be off the charts. I think it's great for fans. But for me, there's just something about, uh, for some reason, I want my football season to end with the best team all year winning the championship. And for whatever reason, it doesn't matter to me in basketball, maybe because I love that that tournament so much. Um, this to me, I just worry that, hey, I'm not saying that the number one team is going to lose to the number 12 team. I'm saying, you know, now you're two seed, maybe the team they're playing in the second round, um, there's an upset there. Your path becomes easier. I don't know. I just, to me, eight, it, it, to me, eight was the way to go because you get all your league champions in and the concern of, hey, you know, sometimes there's two teams in the SEC or there's two teams in the ACC that deserve it. Well, with the two at-larges, that opportunity is there too. Um, I don't know. Eight seemed to me to be a really comfortable fit um, that would have expanded. It would have increased access because you would have had the chance for multiple teams from the Power Five uh, plus the group of six. Um, I don't know. It just to me, it, it feels like as much as I enjoy and love the upset, I sort of dread it uh, conceptually. Well, l let me remind you of, of, of one thing. I'm almost certain I have the number right here. You know how many times the number one seed has won the college football playoff in seven years? I, I don't. I know it's not. Yeah, Go twice, ahead. Twice. But I'm not convinced that the number one seed was necessarily the best team all year. Okay. I think it, when you've got those four, there's been a smaller gap. Um, Grant, good point. So I, I think that that 14 playoff, and I think an 18 playoff would do the same. I think it would tell us, okay, these are clearly the elite. Now let's let them play it out. And I can recognize that team as being the best. Um, but if you get a two loss team in, and I'm not saying that they wouldn't deserve a championship, but a two loss team, did they have the best year? Were they the best all year? No, they weren't. They, they put it together in the postseason after a very strong year, which again, that's what we get in basketball and we all love it, right? <laughs> I mean, we all fall over ourselves for it. It's great. It's phenomenal. For whatever reason, when I think about football, 
I like the fact that, hey, these four teams were, and, and I know when I use the word clearly better, there's some debate always when you get to three and four versus five and six. And um, I guess I look at it this way. I've never felt like the team that might have been the best in the country was number nine. I've never felt that. I've never felt the team that might be the best in the country was number eight. Um, so to me, you go to eight, you've expanded, you make sure you get everybody in, but you're not letting, you're not giving teams sort of do-overs for the regular season. And David, you know, you and I have, have talked and written about the regular season in college football is what it is because you can't stub your toe. And and, and now it just feels like, hey, you can stub your toe maybe a couple times and uh, you know still put it together at the end and, and win a title. Nothing wrong with that. I, I just – I don't love it. I think November is going to be awesome. Yeah. yeah. Because, because so many teams are going to think, rightfully or wrongfully, that they're <laughs> in the mix. And I think their fan bases are going to think that. And I think the games are going to be really, really good. And I also believe that this will encourage more people to play more challenging non-conference games. Yeah, I think from an entertainment standpoint, it's a home run. And and you're right, because now you can play that big non-conference game, lose it, and you're not out right? You're not trying to sneak into the playoff with, with smoke and mirrors. You can take a loss, maybe two, and still be there. Again, I love the entertainment value of it. I think what it potentially creates is, um, going back to baseball, there are a few things I enjoy more than a good pennant chase <laughs> at the <laughs> end. And and I know they've watered that down some with the, with the wild card and whatnot. But I mean, you know, as a kid, I remember it's like, hey, Either you win the pennant or you're done. And I think that will bring some of that drama of, hey, we got two, three weeks to go. Who's going to who's going to um, excel in that crucible and, and who's going to fold? Um, so, again, you know, I, I'm going to enjoy it if they end up going this route. I think TV ratings are going to be through the roof. Um, I just I don't know. I have I have my issues with uh, if we see teams 9, 10, 11, 12 uh, in the semis or in the finals, have we produced a true champion? So it'll be interesting to see. And and like you, I, I believe 12 is going to get yeah. proved. But charting this over the years to, to see, you know, just how competitive those last three to four seeds are right. and, and how much noise they make, it'll be fascinating to watch. To, to me, the one big flaw in this, Mike, is – not having the quarterfinals on campus. Yeah. I just think that's a real swing and a miss on the working group's part. And it may get corrected when they, you know, during this process this summer of essentially a listening tour that the commissioners are going to go on talking to their constituents. Because I, I just don't think that you give away your quarterfinals to the bowls. It, it just... I've never understood the that relationship and why college football is so beholden to, to the bowls. And I'd much rather see a college football playoff quarterfinal in Tuscaloosa or Death Valley or the Big House or the Horseshoe or maybe even Lane Stadium or Scott yeah. Stadium than I would some antiseptic pro stadium. Yeah, and, and that's going to be interesting too when when you think about. You now, there's a tradition with the bowls. Certainly, um, if you're in the 12 team playoff, are you out of the bowls? If you lose in the in the opening round, can you play in a bowl? Like, I'll, I'll be curious to see how they 
approach all of that um, and what they think about you know the number of games because um, we've talked a lot about athlete safety, player safety, and health, mm-hmm. and maybe even a bigger story on the college athletics front uh, coming down from the Supreme Court. 9-0 decision against the NCAA this week. The specifics of the case dealt with NCAA limitations on what educational benefits like laptop computers schools could provide their athletes. But David, the, the big news in the headline was the opinions penned by two of the justices um, in the 9-0 decision. They read as a scathing indictment of the NCAA's entire model uh, and seemed to scream to the NCAA, hey, You'll lose every case you bring you bring here, so don't come back with, with this argument, uh, David. I thought that was that was kind of earth shaking. It it really was, Mike, and I I I think you're correct in that if if you read Justice Gorsuch's uh, decision, he he wrote for the nine zero uh, majority, and. Then, if you also read Justice Kavanaugh's scathing concurring opinion, they are both invitations to further litigation if the NCAA does not get its house in order very, very quickly. In fact, the lead attorney in the case, Steve Berman, released a statement that essentially said he's got other people teed up and ready to go and ready to file suit if things don't change. And it's it's fascinating because, and neither of us are, are attorneys, uh, but why did the NCAA think this was a good route to go to appeal to this? It's not like they went up there and, and lost a close case. It's not like they had a technicality. They thought, I mean, they got creamed, right? Nine, nothing. I, I, I joked on Twitter that, People thought it might be 6-3, and, and then the NCAA didn't cover the spread in this one. Uh, why did they think this would work? I'm not even sure, Mike, they thought it would work. <laughs> they're, they're just procrastinating. They are, and, and when we say they, let, let's be clear here. As, as much as we all want to pounce on Mark Emmert and the president of the NCAA, and, and 99% of the time, he deserves it. But let's also make clear that he serves the membership. You know, these are athletic directors and presidents from all over the country who have stubbornly just clung to this antiquated view of amateurism and intercollegiate athletics. And it it doesn't matter how much of a traditionalist you are, and I am to a certain extent, but you just have to evolve with the times. The athletes today, their attorneys, public opinion, it, it, Congress, the courts, no one is going to stand for this any longer. And you either change or you perish. And that's the choice that the association has right now. Yeah. And it, you know, it reminds me of the hang on loosely, but don't let go. Yeah. The NCAA has been clinging too tight and gradual change could have avoided them being, now they feel like they're at a precipice, right? Yep. They, they feel like they're at the edge of the cliff here. It feels like gradual change could have could have avoided this. You know, I had an interesting discussion with, with UVA athletic director, Carla Williams this week and, uh, you know, Carlos out in Omaha for, for the College World Series, and but we were talking about some of these bigger issues. And um, you know, she's a big proponent of 
the NCAA model. Now, when I say that, she loves that it affords scholarship opportunity um, to people who might not be going to college otherwise, um, especially on the women's side. You know, Carla Williams has told me flat out, she said, hey, you know, she played college basketball at Georgia. Now she's an athletic director in the ACC. She wouldn't be those places without her athletic scholarship. Um, her hotel was in Omaha was right outside, right across the street from the Olympic training where the, the Olympic uh, swim trials were. Um, and she talked about the the excitement of producing Olympic athletes. But David, those are parts of the NCA model that nobody's trying to get rid of, right? Like right. those parts can maintain while you also modernize and update the financial aspect as it relates to getting these athletes some of what they, I, I think, deserve. Exactly. And to to his credit, in his concurring opinion, Mike, Brett Kavanaugh, he outlined some of the issues that essentially giving the athletes a cut will create because you will have Title IX concerns. You will have concerns about funding Olympic sports because why do programs such as UVA's National Championship Women's Swimming Team exist? Because of the revenue that Bronco Mendenhall's football program and Tony Bennett's basketball program generate. Mm-hmm. So if you start sharing some of that wealth with the athletes in some way, does that affect your ability to then support all your Olympic sports? It's it's a question. So beyond name, image, and likeness, which is coming, it's coming next week, by yeah. the way, you know, what does the model look like? You know, as athletic director at Northwestern, Jim Phillips, now the ACC commissioner, in 2014 and 15, he fought long and hard when Northwestern's mm-hmm. athletes tried to unionize. But again, as Justice Kavanaugh noted, maybe collective bargaining mm-hmm. is a common sense approach to this. Who would represent the athlete? I, I, I don't know. But it, at some point in the very near future, they got to figure this out. Yeah. You know, it's in my backyard, we have a, a seesaw. And if I sit on one side and my son sits on the other side, he's up in the air and I'm down on the ground. And um, I, I say that because I think that when you look at, at this issue for many years, it was so complicated and it is so complicated to adjust this system to pay the players, to get them some of that revenue, to share that. But I think what this Supreme Court decision did was showed you Hey, it's going to be plenty complicated if you try to stick it out with this model too. So I think the seesaw is sort of leveled off now where, hey, it's hard work on the right and it's hard work on the left. Um, and we, I think, all know which way it's going to tip now going forward. And I think we, we both feel that, that that's correct. And finding a way to share that revenue, finding a way um, to do it. And you know, I, I hope there is some leeway and latitude for the NCAA, because there are a million pitfalls with, it's easy for a guy like me to say, hey, start paying the players. It, mm-hmm. it's, they're the ones producing the revenue. Um, pay the coaches less. 
pay the players more, more like the pro model, right? <laughs> in in the pros, it's the players getting the money much more so than than most of the coaches. Um, but I think there's so much complicated uh, tentacles to this issue that I do hope, since we're moving the right direction, that fans and media give the NCAA a little leeway to to get there. Because um, you know, Carlos Williams said this to me too. There are going to be some bumps and bruises, whether it's oh, yeah. adjusting to name, image, likeness, whether it's expanding the playoff, whether it's the legalization, which I'm writing about today, the legalization of, of sports gambling. Uh, these are very tenuous, changing, uh, tumultuous times for college sports. I think it's all going to come through just fine, but it isn't going to be a two-week process. And I hope people have some patience and some stomach for that. And oh, by the way, it comes on the heels of a pandemic that ravaged all their bottom lines. Yeah. So uh, it, Carla Williams, who I keep referencing, this is her first job as, as an athletic director. Uh, you know, she's been in administration. She's been in coaching. She's been an athlete. And I told her, man, what a fascinating time to be essentially a rookie athletic director, to have all of this change in the landscape and then a pandemic, a global pandemic, the likes of which college sports has really never had to, to contend with. Um, I told her she should be able to write a best-selling book whenever the dust settles. Yeah, I'm sure she would say, interesting. (laughs) If she got a mulligan, I'm sure she'd rather have it without the pandemic. (laughs) At least ease your way into your tenure, right? Yes. Yes, no doubt. Well, David, when we're we're done here, I have an interview with uh, a former UVA athlete, uh, football player, Chris Long. we're going to talk about all of these topics, all of these issues. He's a, a fascinating guy. And, and among the myriad things that he's been involved in is he has his own podcast, which uh, you had listened to. It's very entertaining uh, because Chris is, is very entertaining. Now, we've both had the chance to, to spend time with him before and, and kind of could see him in that role, I think. But it got me, it got me thinking and it, it brought me to this week's edition of Who You Got. Thanks, Mike. If you could pick any athlete you've covered from – any point in your career to give their own podcast, who would it be? Let's start with David. You know, Malcolm Brogdon at UVA is such a thoughtful and compelling figure. And Dwight Vick, the former Virginia Tech offensive lineman, he always fit that bill for me. J.J. Redick at Duke, who I was around even when he was in high school. And he has his own podcast now, which is a great listen by the way, but for sheer entertainment value, because you never know what he might say, and it's sure to go off the rails sometimes, because we just talking about practice. Give me Allen Iverson on a, on a regular podcast. It would be awesome. That is a phenomenal answer. And you have a, a better wealth of, of uh, candidates with the time that you've spent uh, doing this job. You know, it's funny. I, when I thought of the question, I thought, hey, Malcolm Brogdon, Charles Snowden, like, wow, wouldn't that be um, some high level chatter? And then I thought about Anton Exum and, and, and Jack Tyler um, and the way they used to hold court with the media uh, at Virginia Tech football. And and I thought that would be fascinating. And uh, I think about a guy like Eric Green, who played basketball at uh, at Virginia Tech and, and was just so interesting. But in the end, I went the way you did. And I went for entertainment value. I went for laughs. And the guy that I always found something to at least chuckle at when we talked to him 
was former Virginia Tech defensive end James Gale. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he just, I, I, it always comes back to the 757, Mike. I'm it, just telling you. You guys have the personality, man. You guys have the character there. And, and James Gale, to me, uh, no matter what the topic, uh, if he always found a way to say something, uh, either that it was so entertaining and wild or that it was so out of left field and off the charts, uh, I don't know if he could bring it every week, but if he could, man, I, I think that would be an entertaining uh, listen. Something about Bethel High School. He right? and Iverson both. It's, it's either in the water or it's something they're teaching there. Uh, maybe that's a, a podcast we need to, to delve into is why do they produce such big personalities? And uh, no doubt, no doubt, those would be a couple of shows worth listening to. I hope today's show was worth listening to. We thank you for being a part. You can subscribe to Teal and Barber on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite pods. And please consider supporting local journalism with an online subscription to the Times-Dispatch. You can find special promotional offers available at richmond.com. Today's show was produced by Dean Hoffmeyer. Teal and Barber is a podcast of the Richmond Times-Dispatch and richmond.com. For David Teal, I'm Mike Barber. Thanks for listening. Be healthy and safe. And please join David and me again next time. Next time.